Miss the show, no problem. I'm pointing on the program. The Trudeau government spends hundreds of millions of dollars on ventilators that we didn't need and are now collecting dust in an Ottawa warehouse. We will talk about the finance minister who is bragging about this particular venture. Trudeau government announcing plans for a vaccine passport, but the plan has no details, which is why it's an announcement that is nothing more than a campaign stunt. We'll talk about the chaos it's causing people in this country when it comes to traveling. And new data on vaccine hesitancy reveals some very inconvenient truths. It is not the far-right conservatives or knuckle-draggers who are hesitant. It's female liberals who are holding us back. Let's get talking. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul of This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Cases spike sharply among the unvaccinated, but those unvaccinated aren't who you might think they are. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, August 12th. And here we are, officially now in uh, the fourth wave. There'll be a fifth. The sixth, the seventh, but this is the fourth. And the confirmation made on the same day, we see our highest spike of COVID cases in Ontario, but uh, right across the country, cases are surging. And so here, on one hand, we have the experts all droning on about how dangerous the virus is, you know, that reopening's too risky, but the Prime Minister's not worried, not one little bit. And so Trudeau will visit the Governor General Sunday, so he can hold an election that no one wants, we don't need, also he can stroke his ego. Makes sense, right? No. Nonetheless, today's cases are higher, but context matters with the numbers. And when you look at who is infected, 70% of the cases presented today are in the unvaccinated. And who they are actually might surprise you. Abacus Data has been analyzing vaccine data for about a year. And they've been interviewing 30,000 people trying to figure out who is and isn't getting vaccinated and why. And what do you know? They aren't the knuckle-dragon conservatives or honkies from Alberta. Oh, no. Abacus finds that of 2.1 million who are still unvaccinated, they are hesitant because, A, they don't like the government telling them what to do. They don't trust the government. And they are reluctant to put any kind of unnatural medicine in their body. The data also reveals um, these people aren't conspiracy theorists. They don't think this virus is a hoax. And they aren't radicals on the right or the left. What the data reveals is that those who are most hesitant to get vaccinated are mainly university-educated women. They live in Ontario. They're about 42 years old. And they vote liberal. What? Oh, yes, you heard that right. It's Karen who is holding us up from reaching our vaccine target of 90%. The same Karen who likely lives by the mantra, do as I say and not as I do. They believe that they don't have to get vaccinated because the rest of us will do it for them. And the good news is a lot of us are. Now, these people, according to the data, are not stupid. These are not people who live on the margins. The data says the hesitant women are timid. They just want more proof that the vaccines are safe. And the data reveals that 
those who are hesitant aren't actually all that different than those who are anti-vaxxers and who refuse outright to get the vaccine, period. Because when you compare the concerns listed off, the anti-vaxxers also don't trust government. They also don't want to be told what to do or put foreign things in their body and believe in natural treatments. But the anti-vaxxers tend to also be angry with the direction of this country and the world and feel this whole crisis is exaggerated. Where the two sides differ is that the hesitant can eventually be swayed to get the shot if they start missing out on life. The anti-vaxxers won't because they're not scared of the virus and they don't think they'll get it. So they can't and will not be convinced. They will, however, send me, I'm sure, many curse-filled emails telling me how much they hate me and hope I die. Yes, every single time I talk about this issue, no matter what side I give you, what opinion I present, my inbox fills up with some of the most vile comments you can imagine. So yes, send away. I have a very thick skin and I care very little about these opinions. But it does show you just how polarizing this issue's you know, become. But, you know, I, I saw something online today and I, and I, I think it raises an interesting point. You know, if these anti-vaxxers are so distrustful of government and the doctors and the medicines that'll save their lives, why then are they the first to run to the hospital? 99% of everybody that's in the hospital with COVID right now is unvaccinated, okay? If you really f***ing believe that COVID's not real and you really believe that's not a big deal and you really believe that, we don't, that you don't need to get the vaccine, that is your f***ing right, okay? I'm not going to argue with you about that. What I am going to argue with about is you running to the f***ing hospital once you get the virus. If you don't trust the medical field to prevent you from getting it, why do you trust them to cure you from it? Why do you run to the f***ing hospital? If you really believe that COVID's not a big deal and it's not this, that, the other, and you don't get the vaccine because of... Stick to your f***ing guns and keep your motherfucking ass at home. Stop running to the hospital, putting everybody else at f***ing risk, and, in turn, the collateral damages... People like my wife, who actually need medical fucking help for a chronic fucking di- disease, get kicked out of the hospital because your dumbass is too stupid to go get a fucking vaccine shot. Keep your ass at home. If you really believe COVID's not a big deal, prove it. He's got a point. And he made the point because his wife's got cancer and she went in because she, she needed to get treatment and the hospital told her, we, we can't have you here. Because as we're watching in the United States, the hospitals are completely filled with sick, unvaccinated patients. So she was sent home. I mean, if you don't trust the vaccines, how can you trust the treatment? Again, spare me your emails. It's all good. But if I were a politician or if I were any of these medical experts that have become kind of celebrities, I'd be taking a really good look in the mirror because what this data tells me is that you are a big part of the problem. Because those who are hesitant don't trust you. And maybe that's because you got more wrong with this virus than you got right. Or because you've been seen to be using this virus and this crisis for political gain instead of protecting Canadians. Which brings us back to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister who talks about how dangerous this virus is. Who could only go outside his cottage to make appearances. Because it was too dangerous to go to Parliament and have a functioning parliament. It was too dangerous for him to go to work every day, so he kind of hung it at home. And yet now he's going to go to the Governor General's office on, on Sunday and ask her to dissolve parliament. 
and then we'll go to the polls on September 20th for a completely unnecessary, self-serving election during this fourth wave that is seeing cases spike right across this country. And to him, I say, hey, if you can't lead by example, why should the hesitant and those who are anti-vax believe you when you say the virus is dangerous? All righty, welcome back. When it comes to COVID spending, there's obviously no amount that's too much for the liberals. And once again, Blacklock's reporter reveals that the this time the health department bought more than a thousand ventilators at the price of $138,000 a piece. And guess where they are? Oh, in hospitals, you say? Oh, no, no, no. They're sitting in an Ottawa area warehouse collecting dust. Blacklocks also finds out that it was Finance Minister Christian Freeland who boasted the contractor, which received $200 million, is in her own home riding. Tom Korski, managing editor over at Blacklocks Reporter. And Tom, we normally just uh, talk to you Mondays and Wednesdays, but um, this, is a, this is a story that I think kind of speaks to just the theme you guys have been showing. But all this spending, and here's a case where the health department um, said, well, these aren't the right ventilators. Um, these aren't the ones we need, we, so don't order them, and yet they did. It is thematic, isn't it? You know, this is Thornhill Medical is the name of the company, and that's in University of Rosedale. The Minister of Finance is riding, and she was very proud of it. Amazing. amazing it's my riding. I'll have to check them out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, well, there's something. Um, uh, you <laughs> want to see what kind of cars are in the parking lot after this contract. Sure. It was $200 million and it was the first contract of its kind that went out the gate. This was negotiated literally within days of the outbreak of the pandemic in March 2020. And it was stated as a made-in-Canada success story. And these mm -hmm. ventilators, very expensive ventilators, were going to go to the pandemic heroes, the doctors, the nurses, the paramedics, fighting for their fellow Canadians on the front line. And they didn't, as you mentioned. Every single one went into a warehouse of the more than a thousand ordered. We yeah. understand there have been 56 that have been divvied up between uh, separate departments on call. They have never seen the inside of a hospital. We cannot find any evidence, a single one of these devices under rush order. It was such a rush, Alex, has yeah. ever been used for a COVID case to date. Yeah, and it's interesting because there is a tweet, you know, the minister, uh, Freeland, boasted about this company. It was also endorsed by the prime minister, as you guys point out. But then you look at the internal emails where public health is saying, well, the, these these devices don't meet the technical standards. Like, it's it's not going to work. And yet they went ahead and ordered them anyway. Why, like, why is the question? That is exactly the question. This came from the Department of Industry through the Prime Minister's office. We know there, through internal emails, there was heavy, heavy traffic uh, between those two offices. In this case, exactly right, the Department of Health, and they were spendthrifts on their own account, Alex. Even Health Canada said, look, at, these machines are expensive, quote, unquote, we have concerns about the cost, and they don't meet specifications for COVID use anyway. Why? To which a Department of Industry executive replies in an internal email, those guys are being too fussy. $200 million, Alex, that's all borrowed money, and they are filling a warehouse to this day. 
Yeah, that, it, you know, it, it won't get noticed, Tom, as you know, because people are so distracted right now. They they just aren't noticing this stuff. Um, and it's unfortunate because as we're going to an election, you know, um, we've got a prime minister who's getting great grades on, on this pandemic. And then, you know, when I've talked to you through this whole period of time, we have gone over story after story after story like this of things that were bought, money that was spent thrown away, contracts that weren't put out for bidding. I mean, it's one thing to have to rush out and spend money in an emergency, but there are so many reports and documents at this point that show to just complete either malfeasance, incompetence, or rewarding uh, friends, cronyism, um, and yet, for whatever reason, it's not sticking uh, you know, to those in charge. But this is where the money went. And I agree with you, Alex. People have been distracted. And and frankly, a a lot of media have been uninterested. And, you know, I mean, that's their privilege. But when the tax increases come, as they invariably must, Mm. and people wonder, this was $200 million, Alex. That's nothing. That was metaphorically a drop in the bucket. Cabinet spent over $600 billion every single penny was borrowed. And when people wonder why, and they will ask why, when your taxes increase, when services are cut, there's no magic to the arithmetic. This is how you eliminate deficits. There's, there's no other way than, than I want them to think about that warehouse that apparently is a ventilator museum for Thornhill Medical. Not to mention, and this is kind of the fly in the ointment, the company complained that the Trudeau government was being too fussy over the concerns of the ventilators that they might not work or might not be what was needed. I mean, really? What was you? Absolutely. And that, and that was Industry Canada said, you know, uh, the health guys are being, you know, they're being too picky. And uh, Thornhill, as we understand through internal documents, said, uh, well, anyway, that's the machine. Take it or leave it. And, and they took them. And how? And not one went to a hospital. Under cover of pandemic heroes, there mm-hmm. was so much under cover of this, this theme, that, and it came right from the top, we've got your back. How many times did you hear that? We've got your back. Yeah. We're going to spend yeah. all this money so you don't have to. How many times did you hear that? And it's all in that warehouse. <laughs> if you want to see where $200 million went, it's, it's an undisclosed address. I understand it's a hell of a warehouse. They say it's really something to walk around and watch the hundreds of millions of dollars in equipment that is sitting on the warehouse floor right here in Ottawa. Well, as uh, Seamus O'Regan mentioned just recently, the government took on the burden, Tom, so that we, the taxpayers, wouldn't have to. So they've got our backs all right, right? It's, uh, someone should probably explain to him who actually pays for this stuff. Nonetheless, good digging. It's, uh, it's another great one for you guys. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Tom Korski, managing editor of uh, Black Locks Reporter, of course, a uh, subscription-based magazine and certainly worth the investment during an election because they get the goods and lay out all the failures. And there are so many, it's hard to actually tally them up. These credentials will have a common design across all provinces. They will include the holder's COVID-19 vaccination history, including the vaccine types, date, and location. These documents should be available to all Canadian citizens, permanent residents, and temporary residents living in Canada if they're fully vaccinated according to the standards set by public health. 
Mm, there you go. All right. Well, that was uh, Marco Mendocino, the immigration minister, um, you know, leaving a lot more questions when he gave that answer. And what Canada considers fully vaccinated um, is not what other countries will accept. So that's one problem. But here we are just days to an election with the Trudeau government coming out and uh, announcing this detail-free plan to come up with a plan for a vaccine passport, which will come out sometime in the fall for international travel. And what details did we get? Well, like I said, it's a plan to put together a plan to develop these credentials. But, you know, a, a, a reporter rightfully asked, what is new in this announcement? Well, nothing, because there's no timeline. And so far over the last 16 months, zero infrastructure has been set up to get a program running that would gather this data from the provinces of who's got what, when, where, how. And a leaked memo back in July that uh, came out said any national passport plan by the federal government cannot be launched until at least December. And that would be very ambitious because they don't have the infrastructure. And don't forget, January 14th of this year, the prime minister said, we have no intention of doing this because it will cause discrimination within certain groups. So the headlines are great. Yes, national documents are being launched. But I don't see anything in this other than political posturing to capitalize on polling, which says that this is a very popular issue in Quebec and Ontario. Brenda Slater is co-founder at Association of Canadian Independent Travel Advisors and Travel Concierge with Beyond the Beach. She joins us now. Brenda, great to have you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honoured. Well, no, I appreciate it. I know that this organization has done a lot of work to help uh, try to get, you know, um, supports for your industry, which has just been absolutely destroyed by this pandemic. Um, and, and certainly you come across what, what customers and flyers and passengers are saying. W what was your reaction to what you heard? Because the, all the headlines as you're going to see are all positive. Everyone's, oh, this is great. What was your reaction when you saw this announcement? Um, hmm. Uh, politically correct uh, answer would be it, it, it's just a political platform for an upcoming election. That was that was my initial response to it. Yeah. What are you hearing from passengers right now? I uh, am incredibly busy with international travelers for the fall and the winter and uh, cruising into next spring. So it it your people who travel will always travel and they will find a way and they will jump through the hoops that they need to jump through to make it happen. So even with or without this new passport that they are coming out with, it doesn't matter because we're able to download our certificates from government websites um, for proof of vaccination and you still need to do all the testing of course as well so it really doesn't make any difference what they decide to do at this point but hope is that it's not the Canadian government that does this it's the World Health Organization or IATA um, which is the governing body of all of the airlines because they are worldwide organizations for them to put something together makes a whole lot more sense. And then there is the issue, and I don't know if you're hearing about it from people that book with you or, or Canadian travelers, um, you know, countries turning away uh, fully vaccinated Canadians because they don't authorize the mixing of shots or they don't, let's say, recognize AstraZeneca. Is that still happening? Um, basically, how that sort of started was in the United States, they 
they weren't giving people AstraZeneca. So it wasn't on the radar that it should be something that they discuss or consider as being fully vaccinated. But as time has gone on, countries are changing that information. But as a part of that, there is so much information of what's required depending on where you travel and where you travel from and what kind of passport you have. So people who are having a great deal of difficulty, really the bottom line is they probably didn't do their research very well. And I can't stress enough how important it is to use a good travel advisor who you trust, who will help you with all of that information. In other words, here's what test you need. Here's what timeline you need it on. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Um, a, a lot of this confusion has been made further confusing by the federal government because at the end of the day, their jurisdiction is borders. So they cannot blame the provinces for any of this. This is something that should have been in the works months ago. This is something that the framework should have been put in place. So the fact that they're telling us that, oh, you know, a couple of months or not a few weeks from now that there's going to be some magical passport. I, I don't see how it gets done, given they, they haven't even collected the data across the country to say, oh, you know, Brenda Slater has double vaccinated this date, that date. Here's her, her QRL number or whatever. Alley. Like they don't have that data that doesn't just come overnight. But they do have that data. It's it's the provincial. Uh, each province has that data. Uh, so you can go to uh, the Ontario website and down. Actually, I just did because I'm going to be traveling in September. So mm -hmm. um, so you can go down, go and download it to your phone or to the Arrive Can app, which you need to do anyways. So it, it, it's out there. It's just a semantics issue. But, you know, 16 months too late and a, a little bit of a dollar short, um, I think, is uh, the issue, issue. And we, we, we find that this current government is purely reactionary. It is not a proactionary government. They have not been proactive. They should have seen this coming months and months ago. But for some reason, the announcement came out yesterday. Whatever. Yeah, well, yeah, don't don't get me started, Brenda. Don't get me started. But what, what you seem to be telling me then is that, you know, the provinces can more than handle this. Um, and so we don't actually need a federal vaccine passport. You know, if they could find something to spend money on other than things that need money being spent on them, I suppose they probably will. But that's just my jaded self of doing advocacy for the last 16 months or so. Um, so, you know, independent travel advisors still have only been able to uh, um, benefit from the CRB. That's it. None of the provincial right. or federal programs have touched um, 12,000 independent business owners. <laughs> yeah, that, that you're not alone in, in that frustration of trying to get help uh, in your industry, the tourism sector yeah. and uh, hospitality are really struggling. Mm -hmm. But, you know, given that we are seeing cases surge across the U.S., or the U.K., EU, and now, of course, in Canada, do you expect, let's just use me, for example, I'm desperate to see my sister. I haven't seen her in two years. The plan was to go down, you know, late August. Do I go? With, with my AstraZeneca vaccines? like, or, or what's the concern about them possibly closing borders again? Or, or, or? I mean, it's kind of a, is it not like a little bit of a Russian roulette in, in taking off right now? Uh, well, like all things, things can change. So my first suggestion is always make sure if you're going to book something, uh, right. again, use a travel agent, um, but make sure 
that it's refundable. Make sure that whatever it is that you're booking, you'll be able to get your money back if the world goes sideways again. So then the questions I would ask you is, where do you live? What kind of mm-hmm. passport do you hold? And where is it that you are thinking you're going to be traveling to? Mm-hmm. Because and then those that way, are the markers yeah. That, that, yeah. So if you're going to the States, for example, people don't know that they need, um, that you need to have a PCR test uh, within 72 hours of the flight departing to the United States. So if you're on a connecting flight, for example, from Halifax to right. Toronto and then right. Toronto to New York, you have to have it within 72 hours of the flight from Toronto to New York. If you don't and you're outside of that, then they can deny you boarding. If you don't have the correct PCR test, they can deny you boarding. And you also are required to have, uh, to enter the U.S., an attestation, which is just mm-hmm. a basic form that says, I don't have COVID. So uh, a lot of people yeah, don't have that. Yeah. You get bummed up with it at the airport, and then there's, you know, you have to get back in the line again, and then you miss flights. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a chore to figure out what the rules are. Yeah. Well, they've only had 16 or 17 months to figure this out. I'm sure they will in the next couple of years. Brenda, I appreciate your time. Maybe I'll give you a call and book through you, but I do appreciate your uh, your uh, insight on this. Thank you. Atta girl. Atta girl. That is okay. Brenda Slater, co-founder at the Association of Canada Independent Travel Advisors and Travel Concierge with Beyond the Beach, if you're booking. The latest national surveillance data indicate that a fourth wave is underway in Canada and that cases are plotting along a strong resurgence trajectory. Nationally, there are now over 13,000 active cases, more than double from two weeks ago. All righty. The writ dropping Sunday for an election very few of us want on, uh, of course, news that Dr. Tam also saying that we're into wave four and um, a lot of people don't see the need for this election, not now anyway. And I love politics. I've covered dozens of elections in my time, and even I do not have an appetite for this. So imagine the average Canadian who is tired, stressed out about the kids getting back to school, worried about, you know, more disruptions with this COVID wave, maybe threatening business and more restrictions. How will this play for really the only guy who does seem to want this election and sees the need for it? Will Justin Trudeau be punished for calling it at a time when people don't really want it? Will Canadians even bother to go to the polls to vote? And if they don't, will that give Aaron O'Toole the last laugh? Shashi Curl is joining us. She's Angus Reid president and has been doing polling on this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. So there seems to be this narrative kind of baking in in the last um, couple of weeks in polling, and I really only look at a couple of different polls. I don't look at every poll. I look at you guys. I'll look at Ipsos and all the, the big guys because you guys are the most reliable. But the numbers and the things you're seeing, I mean, there's this narrative that people in this country really aren't worried about an election, but they are worried about this, this you know, co- rise in COVID cases. Well, things are absolutely true. Um, look, what, first of all, overarchingly, it doesn't matter if it's a municipal election, it's a, a, a high school student council election, a, a provincial election, or a federal election. It is very rare for Canadians to say it's time for an election. And usually when they say that, it means that they're so bloody annoyed with the government of the day, they want mm-hmm. to replace that government. So think back to... 2011, think back to 1993, think back to 1984, Mm -hmm. those types Mm -hmm. of elections. Um, And there's always generally a good amount of grumbling 
There is a lot of backlash. There will be tough scrums ahead for the prime minister. Why are you doing this? And there will be opposition leaders absolutely banging away at that. But once you're into like the first or second week of the campaign, the leaders then have to say, well, look, we're in this campaign and we've got to convince voters to vote for us. And it generally dissipates. We have seen those backlash elections, the most mm. famous of which was David Peterson in the 80s. But there were mm. other things going on there. Voters were just kind of done with that guy. And here was a chance to just put the knife in. In this case, it's a little less clear because you still have, you know, more than half of people on these left, center left of the spectrum who are going to make their decision between Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh. And then you've got, you know, a very rock solid one third of the country that says, I'm only going to vote conservative. I only ever vote conservative. I'm going to vote conservative again. So who's left? Who's, who's left to pick up votes? Like, where can you grab them? And that is where, as I say, that the conversation around why are we having this election pivots to who should I vote for? Now, the fact that it's happening in the middle of or might be happening, gosh, I hope it's not the case, right? Nobody <laughs> wants to be in this situation. Nobody wants to be in a fourth wave with the Delta variant. But if things really are looking quite scary, uh, it can have the impact. The timing can have the impact or the effect of driving down voter turnout. So you may just have fewer people showing up um, and just saying, you know what, I'm going to stay home. Or, you know, they may all ask for mail-in ballots and they may return their ballots by mail. This is going to be a very unique campaign, no doubt about it. Yeah, and it will be. I mean, we don't know what the picture will look like. People are not paying attention right now, and they will not, and you know, generally tune in until probably after Labor Day or even the debates. Um, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't give a lot of people a lot of time to kind of grasp onto the issues. But, you know, if these cases are in the thousands or in the hundreds, I mean, they're going up kind of at a quick rate right now. And the other thing is, is how is this going to campaign? How is it going to look? I'm trying to get details. Will there be will there be big rallies? Will there be outdoor rallies? Will uh, Trudeau be glad handing? Will he be able to politic the way, the way he does, which really appeals to people? Or is this whole election going to be like Zoom, where you don't get that, you know, excitement, which you also can't cover it as a journalist properly. So I think the way this campaign rolls out is going to really matter. Yes, absolutely. And the mail-in aspect of it changes the dynamics even more, because if you have a lot of people who just say, look, just send me a ballot. I don't want to come out to any rallies. I don't want to, I don't want to take a sign. I don't want to burn a shave. I don't want to interact. I don't want to meet my candidate at the doorstep. Just give me a ballot and have done with it. Uh, It can have the effect for any of the leaders of being a really, really good thing or really, really bad thing, depending on how they themselves are doing. So if you're having a bad start to the campaign and somebody votes early, locks in, mails off their ballot, done, done with, not thinking about it again, the ballot is cast. uh, And then later you see that leader, you know, kind of coming alive. Uh, Late momentum is is not going to help. And, And traditionally, uh, elections have been covered in such a way where it's all like, oh, it's the lead up to E-Day. It's the lead up to yeah. Election Day. It's all about four weeks to judge the candidates. Some of these candidates are going to be judged in the first week, and that'll be it. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're gaff prone, you know, you make, a, you, make a, you make a mistake late in the election, but it doesn't really matter because your base has already voted for you, you dodge a bullet. So this, it really makes it more difficult, and it will, I think, to some extent, make it a much more difficult, uh, the, the, the ballot factor, and we don't know how much of a factor it's going to be, but I can tell you it was a big factor in B.C. 
in the provincial mm-hmm. election last fall. And it was a fairly significant factor in the last U.S. election. Yeah, um, big time. If you're Aaron O'Toole, you've, you've really got to be working very, very hard to introduce yourself. Or if you're Annamie Paul, to people who don't know you, who haven't been paying attention because their mind's been on the pandemic, because you don't have a lot of time to grab them. Yeah, and right now your polling shows that um, the Liberals, uh, Trudeau has a five-point advantage over Aaron O'Toole, but I think a lot of people are undermining Aaron O'Toole. He is not Andrew Scheer. He is a very likable guy. Um, he's also known here in Ontario quite well. The thing about him, though, is that he's got to put something in the window that's going to catch people's attention because the base is going to vote for them. Even if they, they're angry with him about things, in the end they hate Trudeau so much more, they will hold their nose and they will somehow get to the to, to the polls well, to vote. He's got to put exactly that. That, yeah. Alex, you're, you're bang on in that if you look at vote retention, so that is the number of people who voted for a party the last time saying we'll come back for this party again, is really, really high for the Conservatives. It's 80%. By the way, it's mm. also high, however, for the Liberals and the NDP, and that's something we haven't necessarily seen in the past. In the past, right. Liberal vote retention has been a lot lower. It's been kind of, it's, it's been liquidy. It's not solid. And same with the NDP. This time, at least at the beginning of the campaign, we're seeing uh, party bases fairly locked in. I voted for you two years ago. I was happy with my choice. I'm probably going to go the same again. Yeah. What's the biggest risk then in your mind uh, f- for Justin Trudeau? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few, I know. <laughs> well, and more than that, but, you know, I, I get I get lots of questions, really good questions from from reporters and fine journalists like you. They ask, "What's the ballot question going to be, or what's no. the biggest risk going to be?" And it's like, "Gosh, like how many angels dance on the head of a pin?" It's it's, it's <laughs> easy to answer, and it's also it could be wrong. I, this could be completely the, the incorrect answer. But I would say that Justin Trudeau has always been, and and the data show us this, um, the party's greatest asset. And the party's mm-hmm. great, biggest worst liability. So when he's yeah. personally really bad, it's really, really bad for the party. When he's up and doing better, the party is doing better. And he has the ability, he's demonstrated over six years, to really fall out of the good graces of the Canadian electorate. They put him in the doghouse real quick when they're unhappy with him, but they let him back in and they put him up on, on their bed <laughs> so to mm-hmm. speak, um, when when they're happier with what they've been seeing. And on pandemic management, you know, you've, you've seen the opposition leaders trying to uh, talk about how Trudeau has poorly managed it, whether it's vaccine procurement or whether it's not spending enough on income inequality, right? The, the attacks come from the left and the, and the right on this. However, Overall, Canadians do see that Trudeau has handled the pandemic better than he has worse, right? Like overall, on balance, they're more inclined to say he's done a better job than worse. So that isn't necessarily a goer or a vote getter for the opposition. They're going to have to find things to uh, galvanize voters on, which isn't necessarily pandemic performance because it's also really hypothetical. The PM did a terrible job. Well, okay, you're in opposition. You weren't there. What would you have done better? It's always kind of a mugs game. Yeah. 
Or, you know, if uh, cases blow up, that starts to land at his feet and, uh, and he's got to defend. Why did you call an election when hundreds of cases are coming each day? And uh, so we'll see. I mean, ca campaigns matter, as you well know. And this one is, I think, going to be one for the books. Always appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. I thank you for uh, joining us, Shashi. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. That is Shashi Curl, who's uh, Angus Reid's president, putting out these numbers. And uh, really, there are only a few polls that I kind of rely on. Angus Reid is one. The other would be Ipsos and uh, Maru Blue. So those are the ones that I kind of lean on. Um, there's also another one. Campaign strategy. I also take a look at their numbers. But not everybody is created equal in this field. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can listen to us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.